Hi, Undeceivers. John Dixon here. Actually, I hear some of you don't like that name, Undeceivers. I don't know what else to call you. Uh, Pluses? Undeceptions? Pluses? You can let me know. Anyway, you're listening to an extended version of our Q&A episode this week. We've added three extra questions with their answers just for our Undeceivers. Sorry. It makes the episode about 20 minutes longer uh, than the general audience gets. So let me know if that's too much, too little, or just about right. Uh, We really want to please on most things. I hope you enjoy some extra food for thought. An Undeceptions podcast. Let's get back to work. How many sections are we up to? 19. He's a little incomplete, huh? There is something about 20 that is more symmetrical. You could always shorten it to 18. Brevity is usually preferred. That's a scene from the hugely popular crowdfunded Jesus TV show called The Chosen. It follows the ministry of Jesus and explores what the lives of Jesus' disciples might have looked like. It imagines a kind of backstory to some of the events in the Gospels. Jonathan Rumi plays Jesus, and in this scene, he's speaking with the disciple Matthew about an upcoming sermon he's preparing early in his ministry for what might be the largest crowd yet. I share your concern about the opening line but for different reasons. I think the sermon needs some sort of introduction, an invitation into what, as you have rightly pointed out, will be a complex and at times challenging set of teachings. What does you are the salt of the earth even mean? I'm not good at metaphor. Salt preserves meat from corruption. It slows its decay. I want my followers to be a people who hold back the evil of the world. Salt also enhances the flavor of things. I want my followers to renew the world and be part of its redemption. Then why not just say that? (laughs) Come on, Matthew. Allow me a little poetry, huh? They're preparing the Sermon on the Mount, what could be considered the most powerful sermon ever delivered and one of the most powerful speeches, full stop. The sermon contains some of Jesus' greatest hits, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, light of the world, salt of the earth, and so on. It was powerful, and it still is powerful. If you've never read it in its entirety, it's in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. The Sermon on the Mount is the mountaintop experience of the sermon. Well, this is our Q&A episode where I get to deliver a bunch of mini sermons in response to your questions. We just love hearing from you, so please keep sending in the questions. We're all over the place for this episode, which is, you know, the tradition we've set. There are questions like, what's the point of a sermon anyway, and how have sermons changed through history? Or how would Dixon spend $10 million in the quest for historical evidence for the Bible? There's another one about being woke. That's fun. Another about tattoos and a really tough one about abortion and a bunch more. I'm not Jesus, so no promises to give you a Sermon on the Mount experience, but for the next hour, I'm going to try and answer as many of your questions as I can. I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. 
Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan's new book, Typology, Understanding the Bible's Promise-Shaped Patterns, by James M. Hamilton, Jr. Each episode, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. And with the help of people who know what they're talking about, except for the Q&A episode, we'll be trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. Okay, I'm going to hand over to producer Kaylee and director Mark to take us through the questions. This one was sent in by Clint, but is read by director Mark. Hi guys, a recent article from the ABC on the history of indexes made an interesting statement about a change in the practice of preaching in the 13th century. My question is, did the mendicant orders really represent such a seismic shift in what we understand as a sermon today? And what was the actual progression from early church sermons to 21st century preaching? Can't wait to hear what you dig up. Yeah, I read that article. Um, it's pretty good on the invention of the index. We all need a good indexing system and we have a monk and a bishop to thank for it. So that's kind of cool. As for that passing line in the article about sermons, I'm not so sure the 13th century mendicant orders were anything but a revival of a long tradition. They didn't really change much. The mendicants, by the way, are those orders that take a vow of poverty. And it's true that they were really into preaching sermons, especially the Dominicans, but also the Franciscans. It's a myth that Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. No, he was a really active preacher. Anyway, sermons go back to the beginning. Uh, the New Testament has sermons. They're actually called a word of exhortation in the New Testament. So in Acts 13, when uh, the scripture is read in a synagogue, uh, Paul is invited to give what's called a word of exhortation. And in the book of Hebrews, uh, the book itself is called by the writer a word of exhortation. Uh, this probably refers to, you know, a kind of sermon. That's how most scholars see the book of Hebrews. A word of exhortation seems to be an inspiring talk based on Bible readings. And we find the same thing in our earliest reference to a sermon after the New Testament. So this is Justin Martyr, who's writing around 140, 150 AD, somewhere around there. And right at the end of one of his, uh, what's called an apology, he writes, And on the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities and in the country gathered together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles... All the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then the president offers a word of admonition and exhortation to the imitation of these good things just heard. And the cool thing is we have examples of actual sermons from this really ancient period. We have the full text of sermons. So there's Melito of Sardis, who dies around 180. Uh, we have his complete Easter sermon. It's very cool. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa in the fourth century has a whole sermon on Ecclesiastes, actually a whole bunch of sermons, and one of them's against slavery. Basil the Great in the same period has tons of sermons uh, on the Gospels, especially, where he talks about the poor. Augustine has sermons. Um, we've got 
nativity sermons, Easter sermons, and we have literally hundreds of sermons from the greatest ancient preacher of all, John Chrysostom. The great thing about his collection of sermons, Mark, just in case you're interested, is that they function as commentaries today. So, um, you know, like when I'm preparing a sermon, I'll often turn to Chrysostom and see what he said, and he often gives insight uh, that some of those other nerds on the bookshelf miss. But let me slip in here something I find really interesting, a distinction you find in the early church, but not so much anymore. Sermons happened in church where they were mostly based on Bible readings. But the teaching of the faith, you know, like the actual content of the faith, was done outside the church service. And this was called catechesis, instruction in the faith. And we have loads of evidence for this. As early as the year 200, we have Hippolytus. He lists the three-year program of lessons that you do outside of the church service to learn the Christian faith. In Jerusalem, we have evidence of an intensive program of three hours a day, six days a week for the seven weeks of Lent, where you learn what the Christian faith is about. And we have the actual material taught in these classes. It comes from Cyril of Jerusalem in the 300s AD, right? That's incredible. He gives an overview of the Bible, climaxing in the Gospels, of course, and then it's basically lectures on the creed. So you get the Trinity, creation, sin, redemption, and so on. And in the preliminary lecture, Cyril makes a clear distinction between what you learn in these classes, which basically constitutes a systematic account of the Christian faith, and what you're then going to hear week by week in sermons in church, which are more sort of occasional themes found in Bible passages. It's fascinating stuff. Well, for me. And Mark? And me. Okay, but not, not so Kaylee. Not Kaylee. Anyway, the point is, East and West, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, sermons have always been an important thing, even if they weren't the main vehicle of teaching the Christian faith. This question is from Matt, who is from Switzerland. Hey, Matt. It's about a guy from history who himself made a few big changes to the nature of preaching. Thanks, Director Mark. There is apparently evidence that Origen of Alexandria taught reincarnation. Did early Christians believe in reincarnation? Yeah, this is an idea you often hear, especially in New Age circles, that the early Christians believed in reincarnation, and this was distorted years later into the current belief of resurrection of the body and the kingdom come. So, the simple answer is no. Uh, there is zero evidence. The early Christians believed in anything other than the bodily resurrection and the life everlasting. Uh, for one thing, Christianity grew out of Judaism, which explicitly rejected reincarnation in favour of bodily resurrection. It was certain pagan philosophies influenced by other Near Eastern traditions that believed in what's technically called transmigration of the soul or reincarnation. Jews, even Jews thoroughly steeped in Greek thought, like uh, Philo of Alexandria, did not accept reincarnation. So why do people say that Origen of Alexandria taught reincarnation? Origen, by the way, was an amazing intellect. He was a kind of philosopher and commentator on the Bible. And he did say that he thought our souls or spirits were created in heaven before being placed in our bodies here on earth. But that's as close as he comes to saying anything about this point. People equate that with reincarnation, but he didn't think those souls kept on coming back into new bodies after death. In fact, 
he explicitly rejected reincarnation in his commentary on Matthew written around the year 250. So um, in Matthew chapter 11, there's that passage where Jesus says that John the Baptist was the kind of ancient Elijah come again. And Origen says this does not mean the soul of Elijah went into the body of John, but simply that the prophetic mantle or power of Elijah came back into Israel through John the Baptist. And then Origen actually says, I'm going to quote uh, from his sermon, the doctrine of transmigration, that's reincarnation, is foreign to the church of God and not handed down by the apostles nor anywhere set forth in the scriptures. So Matt, nope. There's no evidence of Christians believing in reincarnation, and there's plenty of evidence. They believed in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. From the 3rd century to the 21st century, here's a question from Riley. Hey John, Riley here. I'm a minister in Parramatta, and I love the podcast. I love how it challenges me, makes me think differently, and although obviously I don't agree with everything on it at various times, it always stretches me. I love how you do it so well, uh, so professionally, and so beautifully, uh, so thank you. My question is around the whole idea of wokeness and uh, how that works in with the Christian framework. You hear a lot of talk about woke being bad. Some people think woke is good. What do you think about wokeness? And uh, if you could share on that, that would be awesome. Thank you. What do you mean you don't always agree with me? Outrageous. Actually, Riley, I was in Parramatta just the other day, so maybe we should catch up for a coffee sometime. Anyway, I'm really glad you like the podcast. If you've listened to a few episodes, you'll probably have a sense of what I'm going to say about wokeness. I think it's good and bad. There is usually a serious dose of truth in these kinds of social movements, right? Um, Even ones that end up being directed against the church um, always have a grain of truth. This movement, if you strip it back, is seeking to advance um, equality, justice. They want fairness. And these are things that every Christian should agree with. And I'm sure I've said before, um, I've certainly written about it at length. Most Christians in the early centuries and through the medieval period would have looked pretty woke. Plenty of them preached and worked against slavery um, and elite pagans thought they were crazy for doing so. Uh, Christians set up hospitals and charities for everyone. And by the 8th century, they were advocating free schooling for boys and girls, rich and poor. To the degree that contemporary woke culture reminds us of this heritage um, and perhaps even rouses the church from its own slumber on some of these issues, I reckon we can welcome woke culture. But, and I'm sure you saw a but coming, good things taken to excess can become bad things. Um, So when the quest for equality becomes an insistence that no one is allowed even to morally critique another, that becomes a problem. So take the LGBT issues. Christianity, at its best anyway, always insisted that we've got to treat with fairness and equality even those with whom we profoundly disagree. As a classical Christian, I can disagree that same-sex marriage is either logical or good, and yet still treat the legally married gay couple with respect and friendship. The problem is, woke culture sometimes doesn't allow this nuance. Some advocates insist that 
unless I'm celebrating gay marriage or whatever other issue they're advocating, I am bigoted and unfair and so on. And some would go as far as to say that my disagreement itself is a kind of violence. So when woke culture takes us there, I reckon it's not just the enemy of Christianity, it's the enemy of grace and good sense. It's an incarnation of that self-righteous spirit of the Pharisee that lurks in all of us, including in the church, to varying degrees. One more thing. Uh, I'm using the word woke here because it was in your question, Riley. But I actually think it's better not to use that term because it's almost always used now as a pejorative. And you don't get far in interacting with others by using language that annoys them. Cheers. Nice one. Okay, here's a question sent in by Brian. In your recent podcast, Knights of Christ, connected to your book, you made the point that part of the cultural negotiation in Europe was to approve of the warrior culture in Europe. This, over the centuries, led to the Crusades and other disasters. Cultural negotiation is very often just flicked off in some Christian discussions as our strength. But your book raises big questions over that process and for how long we let it run. Small steps at the beginning lead to big divergences a hundred or more years later if there's no corrective action. What about now? What are the big cultural negotiations we've already let slide and need to act? Those are the easier ones I suspect to spot. But what are the little ones that will turn big and bite us? It just makes me wonder how to understand the present and not contribute to future mistakes. Hey, great question, Brian. Uh, thanks. Um... Yes, there is no doubt that cultural flexibility is one of Christianity's great strengths. Um, Christianity can go into any culture and accommodate itself to local dress, custom, food, language, and so on, while communicating the gospel. This happened from the beginning, of course. It was the Apostle Paul who said, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The problem, of course is when this cultural flexibility begins to adjust the message itself. Missionary accommodation can very quickly become moral compromise. It's pretty easy to see this, well, for us anyway, in connection with the Church of Late Antiquity, with its um, compromises to Roman culture, or the Church of the Middle Ages, with its compromises to the European warrior tradition that ended up giving us the Crusades. It's much harder to see our own flaws, um, we see with 2020 vision the sins of the past, but we don't have much clarity when it comes to our own accommodating and compromising with culture. Now, you've asked me specifically to give some examples from today, but my first reaction is just to say at one level, we're talking about a blind spot, right? So it's unlikely I'm able to see it any more clearly than you. I would just point out that a good starting point has to be the recognition that I'm just like the people of the past and probably have blind spots. Being aware of that possibility is the first step in having any insight into our contemporary compromises. All right, so here are my speculations. I'm not a prophet, so just take these as wild guesses. I reckon it's possible that later Christians, say 100, 200 years down the track, will look back on our obsession with making church services relevant and entertaining instead of filled with scripture, prayers, creeds and Bible preaching. And they'll think of it as a compromise 
and only a very recent one, you know? We've only been doing this for about 50 years. Personally, I think church should be understandable to visitors, so don't get me wrong, but I think trying to make church attractive to visitors is often a mistake. We're buying into the marketing culture that really came alive 50, 60 years ago. Okay, I've got a more serious example. I reckon it's possible later generations will view 21st century Western Christians and churches as materialistic beyond belief. This is perhaps the most striking thing uh, for me about studying the ancient and medieval church, just how conscious they were of following the Lord's commands about not pursuing wealth and instead caring for the poor. You could probably argue that some churches in history took that too far, you know, almost suggesting that poverty was a virtue and charity was a good deed that wins God's favour and so on. That That is a problem. Okay, I get that. But the opposite problem is a real problem. Individual Christians can today spend tons of disposable income on coffees, takeaway meals, Netflix and so on, and yet don't spend anything like that kind of money on the poor. That is a problem. It's a problem when our church budget is 95% staffing, buildings, music, technology, and a tiny percentage is given to relieving the practical needs of those in the community. Um, Speaking as an Anglican, I've always been confronted by the fact that the clear assumption in the Book of Common Prayer is that the weekly collection, you know, you take up in church during a hymn, was principally for, quote, alms for the poor. It wasn't for ministry, not for buildings or tech, but for the poor. Anyway, as I say, I'm not a prophet. Maybe I'm blind to the real blind spots, but thanks for your question. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will, which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. Did you hear that? Stripes. That that don't obey his Lord, that's his master, do you see? That then shall be beaten with many stripes. Now many, signifies a great many, 40, 100, 150 lashes. That's scripture. That's a scene from the magnificent movie, 12 Years a Slave, with Michael Fassbender playing a southern plantation owner, Edwin Epps. Epps takes that verse of scripture from the book of Luke, literally, and has his slaves who pick the least cotton every day beaten. Now you can tell at a hundred yards that's not what Jesus intended, but there you go. The Bible has been used in all sorts of ways through the centuries, and that really troubles Peter. I'm going to get Director Mark to read us Peter's question. I am bothered by different interpretations of the Bible throughout history, and now between different denominations, and even within the same denomination. I'm not talking about styles and preferences, and also not about fundamental beliefs, but things in between, such as complementarian versus egalitarian, 
Calvinism versus Arminianism. In the past, race segregation and slavery were thought to be biblical, and these different interpretations were by biblical scholars, mature believers, and those genuinely and diligently studying the Bible. How should a Christian respond and react to this fact? How can one be certain that what is widely accepted by mainstream Christianity now will not be shown to be incorrect by the next generation? Peter, there's a really profound question in the middle there. Um, but there are also a couple of things I might disagree with. Um, some of these issues are really just temporary departures from normative Christianity. For example, as shameful as race segregation and slavery were, um, these were not held by most Christians through most of Christian history. I mean, if you were transported back to, say, a church in Hipparigius, where Augustine was bishop in the 5th century, you'd find a very mixed race congregation and one that was actively involved in freeing slaves. So not all Christian differences are of equal weight. Some, as I say, were terrible compromises. But you still raise a really good question. How should we think about those strongly held doctrinal differences like Calvinism versus Arminianism, the role of women in church leadership, baptizing babies, and a lot more? I have just three thoughts for you. Make of them what you will. First, um, the fact that these differences are held by sincere and thoughtful Christians should inspire a degree of humility in us. We should, of course, try and arrive at our own convictions based on the evidence of Scripture, but we should also hold our convictions on contentious things with humility, gentleness. Uh, related to that, secondly, we should engage with grace toward those we disagree with. By all means, have the discussions, have the debates about women's ministry, about Calvinism and so on. Um, but let's do it in a spirit of charity and friendship. My third thought is the most important one. Focus your faith and your passions on the core Christian beliefs held by all Christians. And there really is a core. Um, all Christians agree with the Nicene Creed, okay? Um, that is the universal creed accepted by Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants. And it's a pretty comprehensive list dealing with the creation of the world, the Trinity, the full divinity of Jesus, the humanity and sacrifice of Jesus for our sins, his bodily resurrection, his second coming to judge the world, the gift of the Holy Spirit in inspiring the scriptures and animating the life of the church, as well as the final resurrection of the body in the world to come. These are the things all Christians accept as true and have done through all generations. Let's focus on them. Okay, we'll give John some time to catch his breath and be back after this short break. This episode of Underceptions is sponsored by Zondervan's new book, Typology, Understanding the Bible's Promise-Shaped Patterns by James M. Hamilton, Jr. I know it's a weird title, but it's a profound idea. You know, there's a kid's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Every story whispers his name. The fun thing about it is that it shows how every Bible story points somehow to Jesus. Now, this isn't just a nice kid-friendly idea. There are serious questions why this is so, and also how it can be possible. 
Are we supposed to believe that truly every story in the Old Testament can be related to Jesus Christ, a figure that doesn't appear in biblical stories until hundreds or even thousands of years after those Old Testament texts were written? Well, James M. Hamilton Jr. has written a whole book explaining how this could be so. He's an expert on what we call typology, the hints in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New. His argument is that the original authors themselves dropped clues at every point, that their story or history or poem is a signpost to something yet to come. Whether the creation story, the narratives of Abraham, Moses, and Joshua, as well, of course, as the stuff in the prophets, all of this points forward to Christ. This is not a book offering cheap or simplistic arguments. It's a full-scale case by an expert that shows how, from beginning to end, the Bible is one compelling story. Somehow, well, I think I know how, multiple authors across multiple centuries and cultures have created a unity that stuns the believer and, I think, should intrigue the doubter. You can grab Typology, Understanding the Bible's Promise-Shaped Patterns by James M. Hamilton Jr. today on Amazon or just head to Zondervan.com for more. In Tanzania, people living with a disability suffer discrimination and social isolation. They also have trouble finding employment and education opportunities. Nearly half of people living with a disability in Tanzania can't read or write. In some cases, they're even denied medical care or access to services that offer food and shelter. Anglican Aid is changing this by supporting the Karugwe Disability Program in the Kagira region of Tanzania. The program offers dedicated medical care and rehabilitation to people living with disabilities, as well as giving them access to education and a pathway to employment. It's fantastic. You can help Anglican Aid support the life-changing work of the Karugwe Disability Program by visiting anglicanaid.org. Dot au. That's anglicanaid.org.au. Thanks so much. So my journey to get a get a tattoo was really 15 years long. But uh, this is a Coptic cross, and uh, I've always wanted a Coptic cross uh, ever since my guide in uh, Cairo years ago for the filming of The Christ Files, uh, showed me the way Christians in Egypt have a cross tattooed from infancy. And We're listening to a clip from a video series that John was featured in a few years back. It's called Ink Plots from our friends at Eternity News, an Australian Christian news service. We'll put a link to the full video in the show notes. Infancy. And I was just so compelled by this young man who is a faithful believer in Christ. And he, he told me how uh, parents would want to do this so that the child would never be able to deny that they're a Christian because it's tattooed on, which seems a bit full on to me. But as I've watched the Coptic Christians over the last 10 years uh, suffer more and more in Egypt, I just felt an affinity with them and thought, I want to get a Coptic cross 
and I actually said to Michael, my guide, hey, could I, could I get a, cro a cross done here? And he was like, oh, I don't want you doing it in Cairo. I, I don't want to be responsible for killing you. Are you getting septicemia or something? Uh, and so I went, oh, okay. Uh, and then, so uh, got on with my life. And, uh, but never, never lost this sense that I, I want to do that. I want, to, I want that mark of identification. So I rang a Coptic uh, priest and said... You, you know, a couple of people have asked this question in the last year or so, including Andrew. Here it is. Tattoos? Any thoughts on it? I know a few Christians condemn it based on its pagan roots. What do you think? Um, yeah, I have two tattoos, uh, one on each wrist. On my right wrist is a Coptic cross, reminding me of persecuted Christians. And on the left is the word cross, stauros, or actually stauron in the accusative, written exactly as it appears in the earliest manuscript of Luke 14.27, where Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. I literally took an image of that manuscript of Luke's gospel to my tattoo artist and said, exactly like this, please. It sparked a very cool conversation with her. I'm confident that the Old Testament law against cutting and marking the body was directed explicitly against the common pagan practice of body marking to rouse and placate the gods. I do think we should be careful about how we mark our bodies permanently, but in principle, I think tattoos can honour the Lord. And you'll find amongst our Egyptian Coptic brothers and sisters, the Coptic cross tattooed on the wrist is a very ancient tradition, signalling devotion to Christ. The rhetoric of martyrdom and persecution persists, especially in the language of the religious and political right. And just as early Christians employed the martyrdom myth to exclude heretics, this very same myth is still used to silence dissent and galvanize a new generation of cultural warriors. We can see this in statements by Christian leaders, speeches by politicians, and the rhetoric of media pundits who claim that they are being persecuted in the way that Christians have always been persecuted. The idea that Christians are, by their very nature, persecuted is grounded in an inaccurate history of the early church. Christians were not relentlessly persecuted in the first few centuries and they're not systematically and continually persecuted today. That's part of a promotional clip for Candida Moss's 2013 book, The Myth of Persecution, How Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom. It's the basis of a Twitter feud one of our listeners has been having, and for which they asked for John's help. They've asked to remain anonymous, but basically the question is, is the persecution of the early church a myth? I think this is partly a problem of our own making. Christians have over the centuries and today exaggerated the persecution of the church. We have at times developed this victim mentality, which helps us cope in a world that doesn't believe. I actually think it's a terrible way to cope, but a persecution complex does have a certain psychological benefit. There is this romantic notion that the early church experienced almost non-stop persecution until Constantine became a Christian and put an end to it all. It's in response to that exaggeration that some recent writers have tried to correct the myth by 
minimising the evidence almost beyond recognition. And the most notable example is the work of English scholar Candida Moss, who we just heard from. Her 2013 book, The Myth of Persecution, How the Early Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom, has been a really big seller. The title is a little bit clickbaity, especially the, you know, Christians invented the story of martyrdom. Uh, Dr. Moss knows as well as anyone that while Christians weren't routinely persecuted by the Romans, we have pretty good evidence they were formally repressed on several occasions in the early period, and that experience left an indelible mark on Christian consciousness. So let me leave aside the exaggerations on the one hand and the revisionism of Candida Moss on the other and talk you through the five clear occasions in the first three centuries when the church was persecuted. This might be worth just having in your back pocket. First, Nero blamed the fire of Rome on the Christians in AD 64. And our secular evidence from Tacitus, no less, says that Nero convicted, quote, vast numbers of Christians in Rome, who were then covered with wild beasts' skins and torn to death by dogs, or fastened on crosses and when daylight failed were burned to serve as lamps by night. So that was persecution. It was a single year in one city, so not widespread persecution. The second was 50 years later. We have a Roman letter from Pliny, the governor of northern Turkey, to Emperor Trajan. And he explains in the letter that he's executing so many Christians, he's worried it might not be the right thing, or perhaps he's not following the correct Roman procedure. And he explicitly says, a great many individuals of every age and class, both men and women, are being brought to trial. So that is persecution. He then adds, I have asked them in person if they are Christians, and if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and third time, with a warning of the punishment awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. So that sounds like persecution. There's no avoiding this example. And we have Trajan's letter back to Pliny. Uh, the emperor tells him to carry on killing Christians so long as Pliny doesn't go around pursuing anonymous tip-offs about the Christians. That would be un-Roman. Third, we have an open letter from the theologian and preacher Tertullian to the governor of Carthage named Scapula. It dates to about the year 215. The letter is about four pages long, and basically, Tertullian tells the governor that his Christian community is going to put up with whatever officials throw at them. It's clear from the letter that some Christians have already been killed, and that the governor has been rounding up Christians. So this is excellent evidence. And Tertullian says there are so many Christians in Carthage, the governor may end up causing more sadness in the city than he imagines. Three decades after Tertullian, there is a fourth brief but widespread persecution during the short reign of Emperor Decius. That's AD 249 to 251. So just three years. We have documented executions of numerous prominent Christians in this period, including Bishop Alexander of Jerusalem, uh, Bishop Babylus of Antioch, and even Bishop Fabian of Rome. That was a campaign of terror. Things were relatively quiet for the next 50 years until the fifth clear period of persecution. This is called the Great 
persecution from 303 to 312, and it was empire-wide. It wasn't strictly enacted in the West, but it was severe and relentless in the eastern part of the empire. Emperor Diocletian issued a series of decrees aimed at destroying Christianity. It began with a decree about destroying churches and burning scriptures. And then it moved on to sacking all Christians in public service and academia, which was quite a lot of people by then. And it climaxed in an order that everyone had to offer a sacrifice to the pagan gods. You were literally on a roll and you had to turn up and do it. And anyone who didn't participate was to be tortured until they did. And if they still didn't, they were killed. Of course, in the year 312, Constantine the Great becomes emperor and the persecution is stopped pretty much for good. There's a little persecution in the year 361, but we'll leave that to one side. So here's the thing. We shouldn't exaggerate the persecutions of the early church, but we can talk about these five periods of persecution with historical confidence. Here's Director Mark with our next question sent in by Zach. It's about episode 55, which was called Just War, and our guest was Oxford professor Nigel Bigger. Towards the beginning of episode 55, Nigel Bigger says something along the lines of, Just war should not mean holy war, or war in which the assailants imagine themselves to be righteous, and those they are waging war against as unrighteous, and therefore the righteous have the right to treat the unrighteous as they please. My question is, how is Nigel's description of this pseudo-just war scenario different than those carried out by Israel in the Old Testament against rival nations and races? I'm referring to those stories like the one in which the Israelites are commanded to kill everything in Amalek. Is this not a case of the righteous justly waging war against the unrighteous? Thanks. Uh, this is a tough one. Um, I've said quite a bit about Old Testament wars and violence in previous Q&A episodes. Uh, perhaps look back at, is it season five Q&A? And we do promise to do an entire episode on, uh, on this topic one day. If I'm reading it right, um, your question is quite specific, Zach. Uh, were the Israelites the righteous ones? in any of their holy wars. I reckon there are examples in the book of Psalms where, say, King David is attacked unjustly and he's in the right in fighting back. The language of righteousness is used in that context. But the thing is, does this apply to the holy wars against pagan tribal groups in the land of Canaan, including the Amalekites? I don't think so. There is only one passage in the Old Testament that provides any kind of detailed theology of holy war. It's back in Deuteronomy chapter 9, and the passage makes clear that God was bringing his judgment to bear on a culture whose evil and injustice had reached the limits of what the Almighty was willing to tolerate on earth. Um, way back in Genesis, we learn that God had pledged to Abraham the lands in Canaan, um, but the text explicitly says that the iniquity of those living there is not yet complete. That's Genesis 15, 16, if you want to look it up. So even the divine promise that the Israelites will have this land one day isn't sufficient reason to kick out the inhabitants that were there. This is the first hint in Scripture of the rationale for holy war that would be given generations later in the passage I just mentioned, Deuteronomy chapter 9. This is where we find the full uh, explanation of why the Canaanites would now be removed 
from the land. And I'm going to ask producer Kaylee to read Deuteronomy 9 and ask you, Zach, and anyone else listening, to notice the constant repetition of the moral culpability of the Canaanites and also the complete unworthiness of Israel. Thanks, Kaylee. Hear, O Israel, you are about to cross the Jordan today to go in and dispossess nations larger and mightier than you, great cities fortified to the heavens, a strong and tall people. When the Lord your God thrusts them out before you, do not say to yourself, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to occupy this land. It is rather because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you are going in to occupy their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is dispossessing them before you, in order to fulfil the promise that the Lord made on oath to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Know then that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to occupy because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Deuteronomy 9, 1-7 If this is the foundation text of Israelite holy war, I think the answer to your question, Zach, is no. This was never to be thought of as the righteous against the unrighteous. There's one more interesting thing to notice in all of this. The Israelites never thought it was their duty to become a conquesting people beyond the discrete borders of Canaan or what would end up being the land of Israel. I mean, even at the height of their settled power in the 10th to the 8th centuries BC, three or 400 years after the conquest of Canaan, the Israelites were never instructed to go out conquering other territories, to expand the borders of Israel to, say, Syria in the north or Egypt in the south. And even in the successful Maccabean War, centuries later, uh, 167 to 160 BC, the focus was entirely on expelling Greek oppressors in order to secure Jewish worship within Israel. It wasn't about expanding into the Greek kingdoms. Compared to the surrounding peoples, this was weird. And I think it does set apart Israel's violence from the typical violence of ancient history. If you could do anything with your life, what would you like to do? Well, my father told me what it was like before the war. He said every man was free. America. I want my country back. America. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the Axis powers of America. That's the first part of the trailer for the Amazon Prime TV series, The Man in the High Castle. Have you watched this, Mark? Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it's super complicated, but the premise is so intriguing. What would have happened if the Allies didn't win World War II? If the Axis powers, Germany and Japan, had triumphed? It's that type of alternative history that has proven quite popular. There's a few of them around. Anyway, our next listener, Paul, may have seen it or read a book about alternative histories because his question, off the back of our two-part episode in Season 4 about the Crusades, is this. What if the Crusades just never happened? Ha, that's a pretty random, open-ended question. So I'm going to give you a random, open-ended reply. 
Of course, it's impossible to provide anything but wild speculations. That's never stopped me before, so here we go. On the one hand, I suppose if the Crusades never happened, there would be a whole lot less terrible Christian violence for me to apologise about. Um, Even lose a few chapters in my Bullies and Saints book, I guess. Even if the Eastern Crusades had a certain justification, the Crusaders pretty quickly perverted the course of justice in the way they conducted themselves. They practised slaughter on Jewish communities along the Rhine. Uh, They killed women and children in the massacre of Jerusalem. It would be great if Christians had never done these things. It would be one less dark spot on the history of the church. On the other hand, and just to continue my wild speculations, without the Crusades, there may well be no Orthodox Church in the world today. Constantinople and Greece, the centre of Orthodox Christianity, would have fallen to Islamic armies and probably some other parts of Eastern Europe too, uh, maybe even Italy. After all, that's exactly what Muslim armies had been trying to do for the previous three centuries, and the Crusades prevented that. So I feel utterly conflicted about the Crusades. The Crusades didn't uh, win back the formerly Christian lands taken by Muslims, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, North Africa, or Turkey, but they didn't lose Europe. And personally, I think that's a good thing. I just wish Christians had conducted this war without the ridiculous holy war theology where crusaders were promised forgiveness of sins by participating in the conflict. And I wish Christians had conducted themselves in an honourable manner. Marion asks, Thanks for your podcast, which I enjoy. I'm wondering why there seems to be such a huge difference between the Old and New Testaments in how they judge the importance of monogamy and sexual faithfulness. In the Old Testament, God seemed to have no problem with Abraham marrying his half-sister and then allowing the Pharaoh to sleep with her to save himself. Both Solomon and David seemed to have hundreds of wives and concubines, yet God was only angry at David for plotting murder to get one of them. There seemed to be no problem with how many others he slept with. I thought Jews were forbidden for taking non-Jews in marriage, yet Solomon takes a Pharaoh's daughter as one of his wives. The biblical heroes and those most in God's favour don't seem to have been required to follow rules that came later. Marion, you make a good observation. The Old Testament is full of heroes who don't live up to the ideals taught in the wider Old Testament law. But the thing is, what's the meaning of that? Um, I actually think it speaks to the honesty of the Old Testament narrative. The Old Testament is constantly saying that God's own people are sinful. That seems to be the point here. Many, many things are reported, but not necessarily condoned in the historical narratives. Um, Readers who read the entire Old Testament are meant to be able to make judgments about how Abraham behaved or David or Solomon and all of the rest based on what we know is the total revealed law of God. So in the case of marriage, It's clear from Genesis chapter 2 what the expected pattern is. A man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This appears so early in the Old Testament. It clearly is meant to function as a narrative key. It allows us to recognize all of the departures from the ideal that did occur amongst God's people. This includes Abraham's terrible behavior, the polygamy of David and Solomon, and tons more beside. We're not meant to read these narratives 
as morally equivalent to the explicit ideals and laws laid down elsewhere in the Old Testament. That's the key here. We're meant to read these narratives through the lens of God's revealed ideals. And then we're meant to wonder how on earth God put up with his own people. I've often said that if I could summarize the entire Old Testament in just one sentence, it would be this. Where human sin increased, God's grace increased all the more. Here's a question from Miriam, who is responding to our episode on abortion from season four. In Muslim cultures, if a woman is raped, she's considered an adulteress. The penalty for this, much like in ancient Israel, is death. If a woman is raped and becomes pregnant, she'll be killed. Should she abort the baby to save her own life, or should both be killed because of a man's sin? If the option is present, should the baby be carried to full term, and then the woman killed and the baby sent for adoption, who knows where? I'd love to know your thoughts. Thank you. Wow, Miriam, that is a confronting question. I suppose uh, you're road testing how consistently I hold my critique of abortion um, from, was it season four we did that? I have a few thoughts and I'm not sure how satisfying they'll be, but here they are. First, um, I'm not 100% sure your scenario is accurate. Um, perhaps there are countries where a rape victim is legally considered an adulteress, but is this an Islamic legal principle? I'm not sure. Um, I checked out Quran 2433, um, and it lays down that anyone forced into sex isn't culpable for that sex. And there is a hadith, a report about the life and teachings of Muhammad, that explicitly says Muhammad ordered the stoning of a male rapist and the freedom of the female victim. Anyway, uh, leave that aside. Let me take your example as a hypothetical and a potent one at that. As you perhaps know from our episode on this topic, I believe any argument that can be made on behalf of killing a fetus in the womb can also be made on behalf of killing a newborn. To put it the other way around, if you can't kill a newborn, which wouldn't have any consciousness of what's happening, then neither can you kill the baby in the womb months earlier. Both acts destroy an entire unfolding human life. That's the point. And the other thing we explored in that episode on abortion is that an action can be wrong, or always wrong, but the blameworthiness or moral guilt attached to it might be lesser or greater depending on the circumstances. An abortion following a rape, I think, is different from an abortion where parents just don't want children at that time. Both abortions destroy an unfolding human life. They are both wrong, but the moral blame does seem to be different. So to your hypothetical, I'd say that aborting a baby under those circumstances has exactly the same status as killing the newborn in those circumstances. So let me turn it around and ask you, would you think it's okay for the rape victim to take the child to term and then kill it for fear of being found out and killed herself? Maybe you would think that's okay. Um, I wouldn't. I'd say that killing the newborn has exactly the same status as killing the fetus. Both destroy an unfolding human life. They are both immoral. That said, I'd reiterate that other point about moral culpability. It's always wrong to kill a newborn, but there may be less blameworthy circumstances in which a mother does that. It's always wrong to kill a baby in the womb, 
but there may be less blameworthy circumstances in which a mother does that. And your hypothetical would be as good a candidate as any I can imagine. And the final thing to say uh, is the same thing we ended that abortion episode with. No matter what we've done, literally, no matter what we've done, no matter how blameworthy uh, it is, Christ died for our sins. And anyone who turns to him and asks for his mercy will be forgiven. Here's a question from Matt. In episode 24, LGBTI Christian, I heard you quote John 7:53 to 8:11 as if it were scripture, the same as the rest of the Bible. I've been confused about this text's scriptural authenticity for a while now. It seems like a plausible story, but added centuries later. I could come up with a plausible story about Jesus and add my story to the Bible also. As long as my story does not disagree with the rest of Scripture, what makes my story any different to the woman caught in adultery story? Plenty of scholars have reason to believe that this passage is not original Scripture, and so I'm a bit confused by your comment. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Kind regards, Matt. Thanks, Matt. I love this question because I love this passage. A woman caught in the act of adultery is dragged before Jesus, and Jesus issues those famous words to her accusers, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And when they all leave one by one, Jesus turns to the woman and says, I don't condemn you, now leave your life of sin. It's a fantastic story. So what's its status in the Bible? Well, if we grab a modern Bible, NIV, NRSV, ESV, or whatever, We notice it's marked off from the surrounding text by lines across the page, and the passage itself is usually in smaller print, or even italics, or both. And in the NIV, the editors have added these words, I quote, The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 to 8.11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7.36, John 21.25, Luke 21.38, or Luke 24:53. This is one of two passages in the Gospels where there's strong doubt this ever belonged to the original text. So here's the thing. We have well over 50 ancient manuscripts of the Gospel of John. So just pause and soak that up. Very few works from ancient history have 50 plus surviving manuscripts. Not Homer, not Plato, not Julius Caesar, not Josephus, not Tacitus, not Suetonius, and so on. What this means is that with so many New Testament manuscripts, it's much easier to spot where the variations have crept in. A word here, a word there, a line here, a line there. And the story of the adulteress is a major variation that appears in about 15 of the 50 or so manuscripts. The majority of manuscripts, including the earliest ones, don't have this story. And where the story appears in manuscripts, it appears in different places. Um, Most of them have it here at the beginning of John chapter 8. Sometimes it's at the end of John as a kind of appendix. And in a few manuscripts, it's even in Luke's gospel. So it's pretty clear John didn't record this story. Let me quote from the chair of the committee that collates the ancient manuscripts and prepares the Greek text from which our modern translations are made. The evidence for the non-Johannine origin of the pericope of the adulteress is overwhelming. The committee was unanimous that the pericope was originally no part of the fourth gospel. So, 
You might ask, why is it even there then? Why bother reading it in church? And why would Dixon talk about it so positively back in episode 24, was it? The answer is, most scholars, including this nerdy committee, reckon this account is a genuine historical incident from the life of Jesus, preserved by oral tradition, along with probably many other stories now lost to us. It was written down pretty early, sometime in the second century. Here's the committee's judgment, I quote, At the same time, the account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. It is obviously a piece of oral tradition which circulated in certain parts of the Western Church and which was subsequently incorporated into various manuscripts at various places. In other words, what we have here is a real story about Jesus, which John didn't write, but which some leader in the early church decided shouldn't be lost to historical memory. Remember, John's gospel ends with those lovely lines, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them was written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. That's uh, John 21, 25. Sadly, most of those other things are lost forever. And I'm grateful that one of those stories, and this is the only full story we've got like this, got preserved almost haphazardly in 15 or so ancient manuscripts. The passage doesn't have the status of God's word, so we couldn't use it to establish anything new. But it is a genuine episode from the life of Jesus. And importantly, it offers a perfect historical example of ideas we do find spread right across our sacred gospels. Jesus frequently criticized the self-righteous religious leaders. He often accused them of sin. He regularly showed grace and acceptance to sinners. He told them they were not condemned. And of course, he told them to leave their life of sin. Given that all that theology is established from other formal parts of God's word, I love that here in this one story, we have a solid historical remembrance of a time Jesus brought all of these themes together in one moment of grace toward a woman caught in adultery. The story doesn't have the authority of the word of God. Okay, that's clear. But Jesus really did do and say what's recorded in this account. And that is reason enough, for me anyway, to keep printing it in our Bibles in the way it currently is. And even for preachers and podcasters to refer to the account as a powerful historical illustration of the grace and genius of Jesus. Here's a question from Adam. Hi guys, just a question around Paul and why we give his writings in the New Testament uh, so much authority. Um, a couple of reasons. One is that he never met Jesus in physical form, whereas all the other apostles did. So I'd assume um, it kind of makes sense that they would have learnt from him directly. So you'd think that their views and their writings would be more, um, maybe more authoritative. Um, secondly, as an example, the circumcision and keeping kosher debate, which Paul was um, against and has perpetuated, why would we and why do we trust Paul's views and why did the council trust Paul's views over someone like James, who was Jesus' half-brother? And um, just on the face of things, you'd assume that he would know what Jesus would um, would want and would be all about, as opposed to Paul, who never actually met him. Um, yeah, as I say, with my sceptical hat on, but very interested to see what you have to say. Thanks. There are a bunch of things going on in this question. Uh, the first is the assumption Paul never met Jesus in bodily form. Uh, I'd question this. 
And there is every likelihood that Paul was a Pharisee in Jerusalem who knew all about Jesus of Nazareth. Remember, we know Paul was in Jerusalem right from the beginning of the early church. He was a student of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. I think it's inconceivable that in a city of fewer than 250,000 people, Paul didn't know all about the deeds and teachings of Jesus. In fact, that's probably the best explanation of why he persecuted the Christians from the beginning. He knew exactly what Jesus was on about, and he hated it. More to the point, Paul, at his conversion, did see the bodily risen Jesus. He doesn't describe it as an apparition, uh, a spiritual vision, but as an actual sighting of the resurrected Jesus, just like the other apostles. And there's the other important thing. The evidence we have from both Paul's letters and the book of Acts makes clear that those other apostles accepted Paul's status as a genuine apostle and an eyewitness of the risen Jesus. And you'll notice this includes James, the brother of the Lord. In Acts chapter 15, James thoroughly endorses Paul's mission and perspective. The final thing worth saying is that it's just a mistake, uh, I hope you don't mind my saying so, to see any contrast between the teaching of James and the teaching of Paul's letters. It's true that Martin Luther saw a contradiction. He was even sceptical about including the letter of James in the Bible because he loved Paul's doctrine so much. But a reformer like John Calvin solved that puzzle. Calvin showed that Paul and James taught exactly the same thing, but from different perspectives. James was speaking to Jewish Christian believers who thought they could be followers of Christ without following the law of love. And so James was pretty strident with them about the necessity of doing works of love. Paul, on the other hand, was speaking to Gentiles who weren't confident at all they were able to enjoy God's mercy without practicing the Jewish law. So to them, Paul insisted that we are not justified by works of the law, but only by faith in Christ. But it's pretty clear that Paul expected everyone who had this genuine faith to pursue works of love. In fact, in Galatians, which is one of the letters that emphasizes faith over works the most, Paul explicitly says, and I'm quoting, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters. What counts is faith working through love. There it is. It's a perfect summary of exactly what James taught in his letter, where he makes clear that faith without works of love is dead. Paul gets bad press, but it is totally undeserved. The Christian faith is deeply enriched when you read Paul right alongside James, the Gospels, and all the rest. Here's a question from Jenny. With my Bible study partner, I'm just finishing off a series of studies on Mark's Gospel, and for the first time it hit me that the version that does not include verses 9 to 20 is really rather a stark ending. It just ends with the women fleeing the empty tomb and telling no one what they'd seen. Bang, here endeth the Gospel. I got to wondering then about verses 9 to 20 and their historical journey to now being an accepted part of New Testament Scripture. Why they weren't in early manuscripts? Who added them later and why? And what finally led to their inclusion in the canon? Did Mark, the first century journo, really leave things on such a cliffhanger? And someone else added the extra bits in to fill out the story? Or were verses 9 to 20 later found to be a missing part of Mark's own original text? Perfect question, I thought, for the self-confessed papyrus nerd. 
Well, this is the other passage I mentioned in my earlier answer about John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. The editors of English Bibles today put notes on the last page of Mark, indicating that these verses do not appear in the best and earliest manuscripts. Most of the best manuscripts just end at verse 8, with the women running away from the tomb, and it says, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's how it ends. It's definitely an odd ending. And this is probably why a scribe copying out Mark's gospel in the second century felt the need to add what amounts to an appendix, gathering together, in summary form, what the rest of the New Testament says happened next. The bit about Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene, well, that's found in John's gospel. The next line's about Jesus appearing to two people in a different form. That comes from the gospel of Luke and so on. Yet it's pretty clear the scribe who added these summary paragraphs wasn't trying to pass it off as Mark's own words. It is obviously a different writer. The grammar and syntax are quite different. Anyone competent in Greek will have spotted this immediately, and they will have recognized it as a summary of the resurrection accounts in the rest of the New Testament. But because this longer ending appears in quite a few manuscripts, other scribes copying out Mark's gospel just played it safe and kept on including it. So the question remains, did Mark intend to end his gospel with the women running away from the tomb afraid? That is possible. A lot of good scholars think it's a very cool ending, drawing readers into their own investigation of the empty tomb. Now, this wouldn't mean that Mark doesn't teach a resurrection in his gospel. I've heard skeptics stupidly say, and I'm sorry to be rude, but it's stupid, that since this earliest gospel doesn't have a resurrection story, perhaps the resurrection of Jesus was a later addition to Christianity. Sorry, that is nuts. For one thing, Jesus' resurrection is taught everywhere in Paul's letters, which are even earlier than Mark's gospel. So that just completely fails. And more importantly, in two places earlier in Mark's gospel, we're told that Jesus will appear to his disciples after his death. So in Mark 16, 7, the angel says to the women, Tell his disciples and Peter he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And even earlier in Mark uh, chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus says to his disciples, After I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So there is just no way you can argue Mark didn't teach the resurrection. Even if his original gospel ended at chapter 16, verse 8, readers clearly know what the empty tomb means. But personally, I don't think that's how Mark ended his gospel. I agree with Bruce Metzger. He's the chair of that committee that pieces together the Greek text of the New Testament. The final page of Mark's papyrus scroll broke off and sometime early in the copying process was lost, leaving us with the odd ending in verse 8. I'm pretty confident that what Mark wrote on his last page is what he'd already hinted at in those two earlier mentions of the resurrection. The women went and found the disciples and told them to go to Galilee to see Jesus, and then there would be a story or two about Jesus appearing to them in Galilee. John's Gospel has an account of Jesus appearing by Lake Galilee, and Matthew has one on a mountain in Galilee. So perhaps something like that was originally in Mark. Here's a question from Jacob. I have a question that comes to mind every episode that deals with history, most recently Paulus Apostolus. We draw conclusions from the body of historical evidence available to us, but how could that body of historical evidence best be expanded? To hopefully make the question clearer, 
If someone gave you $10 million for the sole purpose of trying to add to the historical body of evidence relating to the New Testament, how would you spend it? Okay, first things first. If you have $10 million, I can put it to good use. I'd love to hear from you. Sadly, though, I think you are being hypothetical. So my reply is also hypothetical. Let's make it 100 million, okay? Because archaeology is super expensive and $10 million isn't going to go very far. Right. So thank you for your $100 million. Here's how I'd spend it on archaeology. I'd put the first 20 million into a large-scale excavation of the city of Sepphoris and Zippori, the capital of ancient Galilee, just five miles or so from Nazareth. Uh, Director Mark and I have been there a couple of times. Lovely spot. Uh, Shortly after Jesus, this became a centre for Jewish learning, and there's a little bit of evidence that there were some Jewish Christian teachers in the city. I take tour groups there to Sepphoris and give a lecture about all of this. So I'd focus on the older Jewish section of the city. There's also a pagan part. And I'd be searching for inscriptions and maybe even texts. Who knows? Perhaps we'd find something extraordinary like an Aramaic version of the Gospel of Matthew. With another 50 million, I'd focus on the old city of Jerusalem, where there's every likelihood we'd find inscriptions in Aramaic and Greek and possibly some texts. Our knowledge of first century Jerusalem is nothing like we'd really want it to be. So just improving our general knowledge of that time and place would be superb for understanding the first few decades of the church. Remember, Christianity's main city for the first 30 years was Jerusalem. So who knows what we'd find. With the remaining 30 million, I've got 30 million left, don't I? I think, yeah, okay. I'd spend 28 million down in Alexandria, Uh, This is the northern Egyptian city that had the second largest population of Jews in the Roman world after Jerusalem, of course. And by the second century, it was also becoming an intellectual center for Christianity and remained that way for the next 500 years until the Muslim invasion in 642. The Jews and Christians of Alexandria generally spoke Greek. So here, we'd probably find some very fun Greek texts and inscriptions, maybe even an early copy of Mark's gospel. And with the final two million, uh, I'd establish a little team of scholars and communicators to publish all the results of these digs in real time and create another podcast in the Undeceptions Network all about it. Let me know if you win that lottery. I'm at your service. Hey, feel free to let me know what you thought of any of my answers uh, in our Undeceptions private Facebook group for our Undeceivers. Are you part of that yet? Just search on Facebook for Undeceptions Plus Community and ask to join with the email that you used to sign up when you became an Undeceiver. We'd love to have you in the conversation. Next episode. Oh boy. Is there a Christian way to think about and engage with people who identify as something other than their birth sex? We're wading into one of the biggest culture war topics of the last 10 years, transgenderism. One of our guests is a published authority on the psychology of gender dysphoria, and the other is a brave and thoughtful transgender woman. 
Don't miss it. See ya. Undeceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by... Hmm, good question. Editing by Richard Humwee. Social media by Sophie Hawkshaw. And admin by Lindy Leveston. Special thanks to our series sponsor Zondervan for making this Undeception possible. Undeceptions is the flagship podcast of Undeceptions.com. Letting the truth out. An Undeceptions podcast. <laughs>